So we open up the book of Hebrews this morning. And guess what? Hebrews is called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish people, which are Hebrews. And uh, some of you might recall, maybe you saw it yourselves. I, um, I wasn't alive at the time. I don't think so. Uh, but the first color picture of the planet Earth in its entirety, if you will, taken from uh, the lunar mission uh, to, to the moon. And this, this blue and green marble with swa uh, swaps of, I don't know what that word is, sweeps of white across it. That for the first time, the human eye was looking at the planet that, that we live on. And yet at the same time, we weren't able and we can't see the planet that we live on. We can see a portion of it, right? Uh, even that picture taken from the moon still only showed a portion of our planet. Because you'd have to have a more than 360 degree, and I don't know what 360 times 360 would be, but, but to be able to look from every angle at, at every moment, to be able to see every speck of our planet at the same time. Uh, and in the same way, if you've read the book of Hebrews, it can be kind of a little bit confusing. And, and part of that is because we are looking at Christ, we are looking at the Messiah from the perspective of Hebrew believers, from the the direction that they would be looking at it from. And so for that reason, the book of Hebrews is, is a little bit complicated to understand. I, I will tell you that, that as far as the recipients of this letter, we don't know who they were. As far as the author of this letter, we don't know who that was. Uh, some have speculated because of the structure of this letter of the Hebrews that it's actually the text of a sermon that was given to Hebrew believers in order to encourage them, and it was so recognized that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit that it was uh, circulated as a letter then to Hebrew believers, to Jewish believers. The best summary description of Jesus that I know is that he is to be our world. He is everything. If there's one summary message I think that God wants us to take from the book of Hebrews, it is that Jesus is just not just good. Jesus is not just better. He's not just the best. He is everything. And as we'll see, the recipients of this letter needed to be reminded of this because as far as their world was concerned, as far as their earthly world was concerned, many, at many different points in time, it felt like they were losing everything. And there was a lot of temptation to walk away from Christ for many of them. And they needed to be reminded that Jesus is everything. Having a relationship with God through Jesus is everything. So let's, let's look at the opening verses of Hebrews. And, and we're going to draw much, uh, much of today's sermon is from this, but we're also going to be 
uh, bouncing around Hebrews quite a bit. Thank goodness for, for the PowerPoint um, that we can follow along with. But open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where we read, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he's speaking to these Jewish people about their heritage of hearing from God through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, this letter in, in many ways is bookended by the challenge, listen to Jesus. Right here in verse 1, we are told that God has spoken to us by his son. And we will read many weeks from now in chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So much of your joy and of your well-being is dependent on not refusing Jesus. Not refusing God speaking through his son, Jesus about this verse 1, F.F. Bruce writes this, God has spoken. This initial affirmation is basic to the whole argument of this epistle. As indeed it is basic to Christian faith, he, had God remained silent, enshrouded in thick darkness, the plight of mankind would have been desperate indeed. But now he has spoken his revealing, redeeming, and life-giving word. You know, I've shared with you before that I, I went through a crisis of faith, even in Bible college, when I came to realize that every person has a different worldview, that it clouds, it covers, it, it, it shades the way that we look at the world. And so the big question I came to ask myself was, then how can I know what is true? If, if the way I look through the world it's like looking through colored glasses and the way that, that someone else who's, who's telling me about the world, they're telling me about their perspective looking through their colored glasses. And what the Lord brought me back to through this crisis of faith is the recognition of this. This is why God had to speak into our world. This is why he himself, through the Holy Spirit, had to inspire the words of of scripture because hearing it from anybody else you're just going to be hearing it from their perspective God has spoken and since Jesus is everything have confidence in Jesus as your source of truth from God as I mentioned we're, we're not sure what group of Hebrews this was written to I tend to lean toward that it's, it's to Hebrew believers in general and there's something uh, unique about that compared to other epistles. And we'll get more into this into the coming weeks. But other epistles within the New Testament, they're written to a church. This is the only epistle, which means letter, that was written to a people group. And so there's different statements within the book of Hebrews that, that um, 
sometimes it's kind of like, whoa, is this written to a Christian or not? And, it, and I think that those, those uh, statements need to be run through the understanding that this is written to a people group of which there are different um, levels of belief in Christ. Okay, but that being said, I don't want to get, get uh, burdened down by that, but, but this group, the Hebrews, these Hebrew believers especially, had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries, for over 2,000 years. And that Messiah had finally come through Jesus, as Jesus. Jewish Christians were feeling like they had no longer fit in among their friends, among their family. And this was difficult. The book of Hebrews helps us to understand, as it will dip so often back into the Old Testament and back into the Jewish experience of waiting for the Messiah, it helps us to understand something that Alistair Begg shared uh, on the video, uh, American Gospel, that we've been watching on Sunday evenings. He said this, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. But it's all about Jesus. The message for us is that there are no more prophets coming after Jesus. There is no more to be added to his redemption plan. Those who think that there is are probably a part of a cult. Because that's what can be found in a cult. It's Jesus plus what this guy says. Jesus plus what this guy says you need to do. This is why these days that we have lived in, since Christ's ascension into heaven, are called the last days. It's not because uh, there's only so many of them. It's because there's no more that need be said. There's no more that need be done by God for salvation of mankind. Next week, we're going to dig into these opening verses. This week, I just want to help you to understand some of the statements that are made here. First of all, the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the one who is both creator and heir is also a perfect reflection of the God who has spoken in him, that being Jesus. F.F. Bruce says this, just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Jesus the glorious light of God shines in the hearts of men and women. And just as an image or a subscription, a superscription on a coin exactly corresponds, corresponds to the device that prints it, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of God's nature. I don't know uh, if you saw the first Star Wars movie in the theaters. I'm probably about the uh, youngest you can be. I saw it when I was five years old. Uh, Star Wars Episode Four. What movie saga, with its very first movie, calls itself Episode Four? Well, there, there's a whole reason for, for wanting to to make the viewer feel like you're stepping into something bigger than yourself. You're stepping right into the middle of a struggle, of, a, of an epic battle, ongoing war between two sides that you had no idea even existed. 
In fact, you're even told right from the beginning, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my planet. It's even bigger than my galaxy, right? And I, I remember for the first time seeing this Darth Vader step through the door and through the smoke and seeing this, what the heck is that glowing sword coming up out of his hand, his lightsaber, seeing that for the first time. And you're just into this like, where am I? And it was called a new hope. This is part of what is being communicated to us. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. We are made to feel like we are entering into something that is bigger than ourselves. And guess what? It is. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Because he is everything. And he is not our new hope. He is our final hope. Period. Much of what we're going to learn about Jesus is from the Jewish perspective, as I mentioned. We're going to see the significance of Jesus as the Christ, which means the Messiah. As our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Well, that's kind of foreign for us, right? Because we've never really had a prophet or a priest or a king. Well, we're going, to, we're going to learn just how significant those are that Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And we get a taste of this when we preview it in verse 3 about what has been accomplished. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And just to tell you what this means here is since Jesus is everything, I want to challenge you to have confidence in Jesus as your source of right standing before God. That's, that's part of what's being said here. We've got to kind of get into the Jewish perspective here that he sat down. After having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You don't understand what that means. I don't either because we're not Jewish people. So let's, let's get a better understanding of it. Jewish priests who worked in the temple never sat down as they worked. You didn't find them sitting there and like, oh, here comes another offering. Okay, got to get up. Because the offerings never ended. There was never a stop to the need to cover the sins of the people. It was never completed. But Jesus is everything that we need for redemption. This is what we're told in Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And after the whole discussion about this priest named Melchizedek that we'll get into, the point will be made in Hebrews 7. Consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, un, uh, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then we see summarized here in Hebrews 8.1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have a description of this kind of statement. Okay? It's that they drop the mic. All right? You know what it means when, when they say, okay, just drop the mic? It means there's nothing left to be said. There's nothing left to be done. The person comes up, they say it, nothing can top what they just said. They drop the mic, they don't, they're not going to hand it off to anybody else, and they walk off the stage. When it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, describing God, he entered back into, if you will, his, his original relationship in Trinitarian relationship, not that he departed from that. It was like Jesus dropped the mic. There was nothing left to be done for the purification of his people from their sins. So what did Jesus accomplish through his person and work? That's what we're going to learn about from the perspective that, that the Hebrew readers had and, and the, the fullness of their understanding of the words that we will read. But we're going to brush over some of the high points this morning because we needed a perfect high priest to serve for us. And we needed to be perfect. I mean, imagine a social club. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with one of these things where you either got to be a senator or you got to know a senator or you got to have graduated from an Ivy League school or, or something like that. It's who you know or who you can pay in order to be a part of this special club. But what if you weren't a part of that club, you won't, would go to hell for eternity? And what if in order to be a part of that club, you had to be perfect? Perfect in everything you did. Perfect in everything you thought. Perfect in everything that you desired. That's what a relationship with God requires. Our only perfected people are allowed into a saving relationship with God. And yet, we are told that we can come boldly before the throne of God with confidence. How do we get there? We're told in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. How do we get to this place? Or in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart, with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But how are we made perfect to be able to enter into God's presence in this way? Our need to be made perfect is a larger part of why the Old Testament system is discussed here in the book of Hebrews. Because it didn't work. 
We're told in Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if purification had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, talking about the Old Testament law, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest, speaking of Jesus, to arise after the order of Melchizedek? We'll learn about him. Rather than the one named after the order of Aaron, being the original Levitical priesthood. Answer the Levitical priesthood didn't work. Or later in verses 18 through 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Talking about the Old Testament law. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So in order to make us perfect, Jesus became our perfect high priest and he became our perfect offering. That's what we're told in verse 14 of Hebrews 10. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus enables us by receiving him as our perfect prophet, priest, and king, savior. Clothed in his righteousness, he allows us to take on his perfection before God and enter into God's presence. You know, China uh, is already developing a a sort of club, a a sort of thing that if you want to enter into a certain business, if you want to enter into a certain financial arrangement, if you want to enter into a certain employer, you better have a high social credit. And all this is based on their ability, and this isn't Conspiracy theory, this is up and running. It's all based on their ability to track people and their, and their activity. And if they're attending this church on a Sunday morning rather than the state government church, their social credit goes down. If they're not downloading and listening to enough government propaganda, their social credit goes down. If they, maybe they're not posting um, or, or they're, they're not attending state functions like they think they should, their social credit goes on down. And a low social credit means no ability to purchase goods or to work a decent job. In the United States, I don't think we'll see this on a government level. We're starting to see it on a corporate level. We're starting to see it from government, from U.S. businesses. It's more likely to be pressure from corporations to deny biblical truth in the future. We see that you belong to that church. We don't want to do business with you. We see that you aren't posting your support for this progressive cause. We're not sure we want to let you into our business. We see that you've ordered what we consider to be unacceptable materials on Amazon. We don't think we're going to let you order anything anymore. Therefore, we've decided that it would be unjust to do business with you. Therefore, we've decided that we can no longer employ you. Folks, if we are accepted into God's family, 
There is no other club that we need to worry about. And we are a part of a family that takes care of one another. Not because of what we, are, we deserve, but because of who we are in Christ. There is no need to worry about impressing or fitting the world's mold when we've already been perfected before God through Christ. These Jewish believers were constantly tempted to reject the perfecter of their faith. The original readers of this letter were dealing with rejection by their families and by their, the, the, the society that they were used to being a part of, the clubs that they were, weren't being allowed to or, or that they were being allowed to enter into were becoming fewer and fewer. And even if we face the same social pressure, you can have confidence in Jesus as your source of fulfillment in God. We'll read in Hebrews 10 about how they dealt with this and how they helped one another to deal with this. Where we read in verses 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must rise to the opportunity to glorify God and proclaim Christ no matter what. And we must encourage each other to do so as well. And we've seen that our government can easily encourage us to, to not meet together as it's still going on in some states, in the United States of America. But this is nothing new for God's people. The readers of this letter, the original readers, would easily have been told, I saw you join the Christians on Sunday morning to worship Christ. How could you turn against your Jewish brethren by claiming Jesus as the Messiah? You're not welcome to visit our home. You're a Gentile to us. And we won't be visiting your business either. You're no longer a part of our family until you reject Jesus as your Messiah. They were being told. This was something that the readers of this letter were used to experiencing. We'll read about in verses 32 through 34 of chapter 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, one scenario that I could see happening here is these Jews go to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And thousands of them come to Christ. Thousands of them come to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And we know that from the book of Acts that, that many of them stayed over and, and sat under the teaching of the, of the apostles and, and learned and were discipled. But, but eventually they went back home. They went back home, dispersed around, back to their Jewish communities. Coming home saying, I went as a Jew and now I've come back as a Christian. I'm a, what they would call, many call a, a completed 
a Jew. A messianic believer. And they very likely were met with this sort of response. These aren't, aren't days that, we, uh, that they would look back on and cringe over. They were days that they knew that they better understood what it meant, the value of following Christ. It's in these moments that they and we have the opportunity to learn from what Jesus tells us in Luke 12, verse 15. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I don't know about you, but I think I could benefit from being reminded that Christ is better, a better and abiding possession than the physical possessions I take. They experienced this when they had the plundering of their property. We'll see referenced a lot the sacrifices in the temple. The, the, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the, the sacrifices that were regularly, constantly being made. And the carcasses of those sacrifices, even though uh, the blood was considered to be so valuable for the forgiveness of sins, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The carcasses of those sacrifices were cast away, were cast out. Much is said in this letter about the city of Jerusalem, and, and which the readers felt cast out from. And about the temple, which these, the readers missed as their identification uh, as God's people. But the ever-important atoning sacrifice that gave the temple its purpose was simply cast out. As we're told in Hebrews 13, verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And guess who also was taken outside the camp as a part of his final sacrifice? We'll read about this in Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And I love how Jesus' followers then are encouraged to find their fulfillment, for us to find our fulfillment by identifying with Christ and his sufferings in verses 13 through 15. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, meaning on this earth, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman? The day is coming and now is when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. No temple will be needed anymore. And these Hebrew believers that miss their temple dearly are told, they can offer up continually a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and not shrink back. I don't know if this cancel culture thing is going to stick. I think people are getting pretty sick of it. 
but I'm also amazed at the intellectual dishonesty that passes for reason today. So it may just stick around. These readers were experiencing some serious cancel culture. They're being told, you're dead to me. You're a Gentile. I don't want to have anything to do with you. By friends and family alike. The day may come when you'll no longer find fulfillment in some of those family relationships. The day may come when you'll no longer find fulfillment in your influence over social media. The day may come when you no longer find fulfillment in your possessions. And I believe the statement, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or fulfilled in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied and fulfilled in him. Mothers, I want to say some of the greatest pictures of love and devotion and sacrifice is in a mother's love. But any of you can recognize the fact that if you do it so that your kids will appreciate you, or if you do it so that it will be acknowledged, or if you'll do it so that your kids will turn out good, it loses its joy. But if it's done as an offering of worship to God, it has a greater significance than even our time and space can recognize. It can take on the greatest fulfillment of any sacrifice that we make. And that is the very same thing that all of us are called to, is to do what we do, not so that people will accept us, not so that we'll get that promotion, not so that we'll be led into that special club, but as an offering of worship to God, a sacrifice of praise with our lips that acknowledge his name.